invite you to stand again, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're reading Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11. If you have the Pew Bible, that begins on page 912. Acts 4, beginning in verse 32, please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet. And breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, this is a challenging text this morning. Maybe a familiar text, but a challenging text. We ask God for your help. We ask for the help of your spirit to open up your word to us, to cause us to see what is going on here, to cause us to see the reality in our own hearts. Lord, we pray that great fear would come upon all of us who hear these things. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
how important are blueprints? We have a few home designers among us. They'll probably tell you that blueprints are of the utmost importance. There are certain things that need to be done correctly when you're building a house. Things for safety reasons, things for code reasons. If you've built your own house and someone says the word code, you probably have like PTSD. But things need to be done correctly, right? And the beauty of a blueprint is partly that correction, things being done the right way. It's also not, the beauty is not in, here's this blueprint and we're just going to go mass produce this whole neighborhood of houses that all look exactly the same, right? That would be kind of annoying and just cold. There's something special about the personal touch that a designer, that an architect can put into a home. Maybe there's a kind of a standard blueprint, but they can kind of tweak some things to, to look a certain way. Homeowners can tweak things to look a certain way. I was, I did some construction in high school and college and we had one homeowner that we would like do this thing and they'd be like, oh, I don't really like that. So we had to like undo everything we just did. I mean, they were paying for it, but it's still annoying because it's like, ah, don't be that person. Um, but there is a beauty in being able to, to have things look differently and to have that personal touch in that. I think the book of Acts is a little bit like a set of blueprints. There are certain things that must be present for the church to function properly. But it's not just this formulaic plug-and-play approach. Not every PCA church should look exactly the same and function in exactly the same way for everything that they do, right? Not every church out there needs to, to look exactly the same. There are unique historical and cultural contexts for every church in every place since post-Pentecost Jerusalem. The first century church in Jerusalem that we read about here is not the 16th century church in Geneva in the days of Calvin. It's not the 21st century church here in Oshkosh. Some of the details look different. Think about the actual building materials that would have been used in those three historical settings. It would have changed the way that a house is built, right? The materials we have today, some of the advances in technology, make our houses look much different than they would have looked in the first century or in the 16th century. But the end goal is still the same, right? It's to have a physical structure that can provide protection for people, to provide a place for them to dwell and for their families to gather together. I mentioned a few times already as we've been going through Acts, that Acts is both transitional, means that there are non-repeatable events. There are things that happen in the book of Acts, like the day of Pentecost, that aren't meant to be repeated. So it's, it's a transitional period, but it's also programmatic. It means that there are things that we should seek to apply and to implement. There are timeless truths in the scriptures that apply to the church today. As Livingstone Church plans to send off folks to Good Hope Presbyterian Church, both churches need to be asking some fundamental questions as we seek to be faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. Questions like, how does the Lord grow his church? 
It's our main question that we're asking this morning. How does the Lord grow his church? Or how should we go about being about the Lord's business as his people? And as we specifically see in this text, what should we not be like? Right? What should we not be like? We're given a very sobering picture here of two contrasting types of approaches to life and community. This is a familiar passage for many of us, but this is also a very challenging one. There are many layers to this. There are many Old Testament references, a lot of things we can't adequately address in our time together today. But I think we do see in the end of chapter 4 here into chapter 5, we see a clear blueprint for how the Lord grows his church. If you're taking notes, the main idea, which will be reflected in four points of the outline, is this. We must seek to be a unified, witnessing, gracious, generous, gracious, and authentic community. We must seek to be a unified, witnessing, generous, and authentic community. So if we ask the question, how does the Lord grow his church, then we will answer with these four things. First, the Lord grows his church through a unified community. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now we've seen this thing, this same thing described already. If you look back at chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, we read that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What are the similarities in that description at the end of chapter 2 and this one at the end of chapter 4? There are four things. Belief. They believed in the risen Christ. They were together, it says in chapter 2. Here it says they, were, they had one heart and one soul. They were selling their possessions and giving to those in need. They were not saying that anything that belonged to them was their own. And then fourth, they had all things in common. Now Luke tells us how this specifically played out in verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Notice the connection with Deuteronomy 15 that we read in our Old Testament reading. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, there are a few things worth noting here in these verses. It's that this giving was intermittent, that it was need-based, and that it was voluntary. That it was intermittent is actually seen in the description of the word sold here, which is in the present tense in the Greek, and most commentators will translate it as something like, they sold, from time to time, they sold their possessions, or periodically they sold their possessions. So it wasn't um, that they were always selling everything that they owned. The second thing is that it was need-based. Look at the end of verse 35. As any had need. These 
proceeds were, that were given were being distributed as any had need. So they had others in mind here. And then it was voluntary. We see in verse 34, as many as were owners of lands or houses. This is not a mandatory requirement, as we'll see later. So that's what it is. What is it not? It's not a blueprint for communism. As much as college students today somehow mind-bogglingly, like maybe college students in the 60s, think, yeah, communism is a really good thing. I don't get it. I've lived in a communist country. It's not a good thing. It looks good on paper, right? Everyone pool our possessions together and, and live together. But it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work when sin is involved. It doesn't work when corrupt governments and corrupt power is involved. It never works. So it's not a blueprint for communism. It's also not a justification for cult-like practices. If you are being recruited to sell your stuff and to move off the grid so you can be in a church that's like the book of Acts, run for your life, okay? Also, I need to say, this is not a passage to guilt you into giving more to the church, to increasing your tithe. There are plenty of challenges in this passage, but this is not specifically about tithing. It is more about heart and soul unity and how those things are essential to the church's commands to care for one another. So how are we doing at this church? Again, this is not necessarily in our day going to look the same way that it looked in the first century. But are we believing in the gospel together? Are we united in Christ? Do we have everything in common in the sense that we share and we bear one another's burdens? When one of us hurts, does the whole community hurt? When one of us rejoices, do we rejoice together? Are we a unified community? This is so challenging in our hyper-individualistic age. Think of all the descriptors out there that contain the prefix self. Self-reliance, self-preservation, self-promotion, self-help, right? Go to the bookstore, the self-help section. Contrast that with the one another's of scripture. Love one another. Bear with one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, let us be unified by our love for one another, that the world may know that we are Jesus' disciples, and that the Lord may grow his church. But it's not just through a unified community that the Lord grows his church. The Lord also grows his church through a witnessing community. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. At Livingstone Church, we want to be a worshiping community and a witnessing community. 
We talk about this a lot. We talk about it in our uh, new member classes. We talk about it usually at our congregational meetings when we're giving updates. The importance of being a worshiping community and a witnessing community. We talk about the difference between come and see and go and tell. Being a worshiping community, we are saying to the world, come and see. Come and see this Christ, this glorious resurrected Christ who we worship. Come and hear from his word. Come and, and see a people who, who live for him and who are excited about how he is at work in our lives, how is he, he is at work in the world around us. Come and see that. Come and join us. But we don't just stay here, right? We don't just sit on our hands and say, well, if people don't come, I guess they don't want to hear it, right? We need to go and tell. We need to go and be witnesses. We need to, to come here and be equipped to go out into the world and to witness for Christ. And remember also that our worshiping is witnessing. We are witnessing to the world as we gather together for worship. We talk about that often when we take the Lord's Supper. Paul says that we declare his work, right? We declare who he is until he comes. We declare that to the world. So it is a witnessing. Here in Acts 4, I think we have a combination of these two things. The witnessing overflows from the worship. Notice how Luke describes their witnessing. Verse 33, great power. Duname megale. Mega dynamite. This is powerful witnessing. Spiritual power. This is important here in the face of political and religious, the religious powers that be. The apostles and the early Christians, this ragtag group of Jesus followers, they turned the world upside down, not by a power of their own. We saw a couple weeks ago in chapter four, right? Who, who are these uneducated men who are saying these things? It wasn't their own wisdom. It was the power of of God unleashed through their testimony of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is a massive underlying theme in Acts. Jesus is risen and his church is marching forward victoriously in his resurrection power. The church can't be stopped. This is not something man-made. We're going to see that coming up. You can't stop it. If this is of God, it can't be stopped, right? And how do we do this? Not by lording it over people, not by seeking political or religious power, but by identifying with Christ in his crucifixion, in humility and weakness, being bold because we have been raised with him. This is attractive. The world today needs humble and bold leadership. Our country is in desperate need of humble and bold leadership. Our cities need it. All of our workplaces need it. Our churches need it. Our families need it. And our goal is not simply just to get more Christians in positions of influence to change the culture. But if the Lord should choose to use us in certain arenas to witness for him, we shouldn't shy away from that. We should seek opportunities to witness. We should seek opportunities to witness to those in positions of power and authority so that the gospel might have an impact in those places. 
I myself can't have the type of influence that many of you can have in the places where God has placed you. It's not simply just the job of professional clergy to witness about Jesus, but of all who believe. Look back at verse 31. This is what we ended with last week. Speaking of all the believers, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is what is expected of us as followers of Jesus. It's not just the apostles, but all of us. In the beauty in verse 33, we saw great power. We also see great grace. Now, this could mean the grace of God that is enabling them to do these things, but it could also mean that great favor was upon them. Do we pray for this, brothers and sisters? For favor among those whom we live and work and minister. Not that they would just like us, but that God would give us favor to witness, to speak of him, to to show the love of Christ in the way that we serve. Having a favorable hearing is not mutually exclusive. This is important. Having a favorable hearing is not mutually exclusive with expecting the hatred of the world. We are to expect the hatred of the world. Jesus promised it, right? The world will hate us for our testimony about Christ. But let us not shy away from praying that God would break through and overcome the hatred in those hearts to those whom we witness. Right? I mean, this feels a little crazy sometimes, right? Like, oh, my coworkers are going to hate me if I talk about Jesus. But, like, I want them to know Jesus, right? So, God, give me favor. Don't be this curmudgeon that's like, well, you hate me, so I'm just going to be a jerk to you. That, that's not how it works. That doesn't make sense. Anticipate the hatred. Anticipate the opposition. But pray that God would change their hearts, right? Pray for favor to be able to speak about Christ. And maybe that favor won't come. But that's not up to you. It's up to God. We need to trust in his sovereign will in these things. So the Lord grows his church through a unified and a witnessing community. Now we come to exhibit A and exhibit B of what that looks like. Both a positive example and a negative example. The positive example is that the Lord grows his church through a generous community. We're introduced here to Joseph, Joseph, who is nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles, means son of encouragement. Barnabas is a key figure in Acts. In chapter 9, we're going to see Barnabas again. He's the one who brings Paul to the apostles. They're all freaking out because they're like, here's this guy who's been killing Christians. What's going on? Barnabas Barnabas brings Paul and says, hey, guys, he's good. He's, He's one of us. Uh, And then he's going to join Paul on his first missionary journey. So Barnabas will be a key player in the book of Acts. He is held before us here as an exemplary Christian, someone we should seek to follow and seek to be like. One who did not say that anything belonging to him was his own, but he was willing to share with those in need. He was displaying true generosity from the heart. Barnabas spent time with the apostles who would have passed on the teachings of Jesus to him. Perhaps forefront in his mind during the sale of his field and 
The laying of the proceeds at the feet of the apostles was the encounter that Jesus had with a man who asked him to decide to divide his inheritance between him and his brother in Luke 12. Do you remember what Jesus said to that man? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We see that here, right, in chapter 4, the early Christians saying that their life, understanding their life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And then Jesus went on and told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, Jesus said, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's easy to read and interpret this parable in an individualistic context. But Jesus continues on and he fills out the meaning for his disciples. He tells them not to be anxious about what they will eat or what they will wear, reminding them that God feeds the the ravens and he clothes the lilies of the field. And instead of anxiety over these things, he gives them this reminder, which was not lost on Barnabas, and it should not be lost on us either. Instead, Jesus says, this is in Luke 12, beginning in verse 31, instead, instead of the anxiety over things that are beyond our control. Instead, seek God's kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think this is one of the most piercing statements that Jesus made in his ministry. And it's a pretty good summary of this contrast that we see here between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Clearly, this is about a heart posture. Where their treasure was, their hearts were also. What about us, friends? Where are our treasures? I think this is the deeper question that we need to ask ourselves. The surface question might be, do we trust that God will meet our needs, both individually and as a church? But the way we genuinely answer that is by asking, where is our treasure? Now, if you've been looking at the news recently, the last, I mean, always, I guess, but especially recently, (laughs) 
Financial news dominates the headlines. There's anxiety over inflation, possibility of a recession, retirement funds going up and down. There's just gobs and gobs of advice and articles and what, what should we do with our money and how should we anticipate the future. We're in a presidential election cycle, so expect to be bombarded by it even more over the next 12 months. But how should we respond? There are plenty of opportunities for anxiety as a church, for both Livingstone Church and for Good Hope Presbyterian Church. Ask James and me. Ask our elders. We are trying to trust the Lord here by sending out about a quarter of our people. Good Hope is trusting that the Lord is going to gather enough people to come together to establish a faithful gospel-preaching gospel church in Stevens Point. And that doesn't just happen, right? It takes resources. It takes people. It takes money, obviously, right? Not just to pay the pastor, but to do ministry, to provide a place to meet, to seek to build up the body of Christ, and to be faithful what God, to do what God has called us to do. It takes a generous community. It takes a whole bunch of Barnabases who trust the Lord to provide. So brothers and sisters, let us be Barnabases. There's, I didn't know what the female version of Barnabas was. I was going to try to come up with some. If anybody can come up with, you don't need to tell me now, but there's some, just sounds too masculine, Barnabas. So anyways, ladies, be Barnabases too. But if there's a, whatever, I'll stop. But the final way that we see that the Lord grows his church is by way of contrast. If we are to be Barnabases, we are not to be Ananiases and Sapphiras. The Lord grows his church, lastly, through an authentic community. Every generation has their buzzwords. These buzz buzzwords are often connected to a deeper set of values I love one of the Gen Z buzzwords, authenticity. In a January article in Wired Magazine, the title of the article was called, Keep It Real or Lose Gen Z. That's what the first paragraph says. In 2023, social media will change, with young users increasingly pushing for more meaningful online interactions. The dominant legacy players like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter will give way to platforms that prioritize simplicity and authenticity. It goes on to talk about the app Be Real. And as much as I joke with my kids every time their Be Real goes off, I say every picture that I take is a Be Real. But there is something that is refreshing for young people and some older people. <clears throat> Lindsay, um, <laughs> who are on Be Real. There's something refreshing about this thing going off at a random time of the day, and whatever you're doing, you take a picture in an app where there's no likes, there's no followers, there's no ads, and there's no filters. There is something genuinely refreshing about that, as maybe cheesy as it might be at, in some ways. It, it is refreshing. So here's the connection, and maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but Barnabas is be real, and Ananias and Sapphira 
our Facebook and Instagram. Ananias and Sapphira are inauthentic to the core. It's all a show. They want to look like they are something on the outside that they are not on the inside. I remember when I was in seminary, I was, one of my professors was talking about uh, posting something on Facebook. He's like, yeah, my family you know, got to the park and we were running and my, fun, my son falls down and skins his knee and he's screaming bloody murder. And, and we get over to the swing set and then we like get everybody together and we take this picture and it's like, looks like everything's glamorous. And he's like, it totally like five minutes ago, it was just total mayhem. And now we've got this like nicely put together picture, right? That's the picture of inauthenticity. I'm not saying you shouldn't post pictures of your family on Facebook, but, but we have a very real life example of kind of two contrasting ways of what are we putting out there to the world. Ananias and Sapphira were putting a fake version of themselves out there. This was the epitome of hypocrisy. And Barnabas, Barnabas and those described at the end of chapter four are authentic. They're authentic, spirit-filled believers who are trusting God with their lives, with their possessions and property, and with the relational dynamics of the Christian community. Up until this point, there has been some increasing opposition to the gospel and to this still relatively small band of disciples. But the opposition at this point has all been external. The religious leaders feel threatened. They've warned Peter and John and therefore all of the other believers to not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But now here, Luke flips the script and we get an account of internal opposition to the gospel. Things are not all roses in the early church. When people say to you, I want to go back to like it was in the early church, you could maybe snarkily say, oh, like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Let's look at their situation now. Chapter five, Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, they sell this piece of property, says that Ananias with her knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter, knowing what's going on here, confronts him, says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice the where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the heart language here. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They did not lie to man, but to God. We're told that the sale and the giving was voluntary. They weren't forced to give, but they decided to deceive. They decided this plan to only give a portion and make it look like they were giving all. And God kills him right there on the spot. No chance to explain himself to Peter. No chance to repent. No chance to say, you got me, Peter. Sorry. Let me go get the rest of the money and bring it. Just dead, right? And notice the response. 
great fear came upon all who heard it. Phobos megas. Mega phobia. Okay, we got mega dynamite, we got mega grace, and now we got mega phobia. Great fear comes upon all who heard it. And they carry Ananias out and bury him. Now it's Sapphira's turn. She shows up three hours later. She doesn't know what happened to her husband. Peter gives her an opportunity to respond in verse 8. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And just like her husband, she lies and says, yes, for so much. Peter asks a piercing question and gives a fatal pronouncement in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Did you think God would not know? Seriously. Their deception and their hypocrisy are evident to men and to God. And then she dies. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Notice the irony in both of their deaths. They fall down where? At the apostles' feet. Which is what? The same place Barnabas and the others laid their authentic, generous gifts. The contrast here is, is very stark. Now, what's the point here? Again, is this give more to the church or God is going to strike you dead? Probably not. But I think we are meant to be shaken by this account. To consider how those who appeared to be part of the Christian community could, in the end, be at best immature, deceived believers and at worst, total fakers. Now, maybe we get some help thinking through this by looking at Jesus' parable of the sower about the seed that is sown on four different types of soil. The first is the seed that is sown on the path that Jesus said. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Not only did the evil one snatch away the seed from Ananias and Sapphira, but he filled their hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues to explain the parable, Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This right here is the deceitfulness of riches playing out. Now, whether Ananias and Sapphira loved money more than God or they just didn't trust that God would provide for them, they were deceived by riches and they sought to deceive God and others. And in the end, it cost them their lives. There's probably meant to be here an echo of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And the role of money and how it cost him his life. But then Jesus describes the final type of soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands. He indeed bears fruit 
and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another in another thirty. This fruit, as seen here in the early church, is the provision of needs for the people of God. It is true neighbor love, achieved through authentic self-sacrifice and being content with what God has provided. The contrast between Barnabas' fate and that of Ananias and Sapphira's is meant to shake us up. It shook up those who heard it and witnessed it firsthand. Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I mentioned earlier that Barnabas, we see him again in Acts chapter 9 as he brings Paul to the apostles. After that, Paul begins to preach and people are trying to kill him. So they send Paul away. And as they send Paul away, this is what it says in Acts 9.31. And notice the parallels with what is going on here. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord... And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. They were a unified, witnessing, generous, and authentic community. The internal opposition brought about by Ananias and Sapphira was swiftly and justly dealt with so that God's church might multiply. And we stand here today, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years later, on the shoulders of those who have gone before us in the faith, those who have sacrificed comfort and ease for the sake of the gospel. Will we be the same type of community today? Walking in their footsteps and following their examples, as they believed, as they followed Jesus, as they testified to the resurrection of their Lord. Well, one way that we still get to do that today is by coming to this table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes about what it looks like to prepare our hearts and to come and receive the Lord's Supper. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see that element of being a witnessing community. But then notice what Paul says here. And I think there may be a bit of a connection with Ananias and Sapphira here. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And 
we we like to stop there most of the time. I often stop there, but we really should keep reading. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, if you only bring part of your tithe and say you brought your whole tithe, that God's going to strike you dead. I'm also not going to say that if you come and partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that God is going to strike you dead. But Paul does give this warning about people being weak and ill and some dying. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know what to make of that. But just as there is some level of warning in the Ananias and Sapphira passage, there is a level of warning here, right? We shouldn't just gloss over this and be, oh, that just was in the first century. God would never do that today. We need to examine ourselves. We need to come to this table in a worthy manner. And what that means is not that we say, oh, I have it all together, right? I have my, I have my Facebook and Instagram face on today. No, you have your be real face on, right? You come and you say, you know what? It's been a really hard week. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against others. I don't have it all together, but I am a sinner in need of grace, right? I need to be real. I need to come to this table, not acting like I have it all together, but I need to come humbly, dependent upon the Lord for his mercy and his grace. If that's you, if you are someone who trusts in Christ, then you're welcome to come to this table. Again, we're not requiring you to give us a list of of all your highlights of the week and, and how well you're doing. We would ask that you'd be someone who is a desperate sinner in need of, of grace and mercy. You also don't need to be a member of Livingstone Church. You don't even need to be a Presbyterian, praise the Lord. Uh, but we do ask that you would be someone who who trusts in Christ, who truly, genuinely trusts in Christ, who has been baptized, who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. And if you're not there yet, we would love to talk to you more about what that means. That's fine. There's no judgment. Uh, we would ask you to remain in your seat at this time. Um, and then if those who are serving with 